Today on the show, we're discussing the powers, risks, and taboos of psychoactive plant medicine. It's a fascinating discussion I share with author and thought leader Michael Pollan, who most recently published This Is Your Mind on Plants. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. My my name is Demi, and uh, I thank you for coming on my podcast for D with Demi Lovato. <laughs> sure, happy to be here. Yeah. Well, I first of all, I'm I'm so excited to talk to you because I'm sitting in my shroom room. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I do. almost could have guessed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, believe it or not, I actually I don't shroom in here like. You would think that I would. I have a, a a lot of respect for plant medicine, and um, I actually I won't shroom in here unless there's a shaman with me or some you know someone that uh, can take me through a ceremony. But I respect the plant medicine so much, and I wanted to talk to you about all of your research and your findings in this. Uh, in this lane. And so, wow. Um, well, I'm happy to talk about that. I too respect the plant medicines and the plants to an yes. incredible degree. I'm, I'm continually astonished at their genius for creating precisely the molecule that unlocks something in our brains. I mean, that is such an astonishing fact. I was wondering, could you take us back to when you first became interested in exploring how we put plants in our bodies and how that affects us? Sure. So I've been interested in plants and their relationship to us, their symbiotic relationship to us, as long as I, I can remember. I mean, I, I became, I started gardening when I was eight years old and, and became fascinated with plants. But as I got older, I, and I started realizing that there were so many different things we use plants for. And, um, you know, we use them for, to feed ourselves, obviously. We're, we depend on them completely. We use them to clothe ourselves. Most of our clothing comes from plants. Um, we use them for beauty. We use them for entertainment. And we use them to change the, the textures of consciousness. And I've always been kind of interested in why do plants do that? And, and why do we like to change consciousness? Um, because it doesn't immediately seem like a smart thing to do. You know, <laughs> you, you change consciousness and you're more right. likely to have accidents. You might overdose. You might, I mean, all sorts of bad things can happen. Mm -hmm. So you would think that evolution would have done away with the people using drugs if it if it decreased the chances of our survival, but that's not true. Um, so there must be some value in changing consciousness. And I've been very interested in that question for a long time. I think we change consciousness out of boredom. Um, I think we change consciousness to get out of our egos and connect with other people or connect with nature. I mean, you know, to, to, to have a wider sense of, of interconnectedness, uh, which is very useful to a social species like us. So I think that Plant medicines have nourished us in a great many ways, and they and obviously they heal us too. So that's been my, uh, you know, I, I, I've written two books really now, um, How to Change Your Mind, which was really about the science of psychedelics and psychedelic therapy, and then this new book, 
uh, which is much more looking at a few different plants and our relationship to them. And, and this uh, is that's this is your mind on plants. Yeah, this is your mind on plants, where I right. look at a, a psychedelic mescaline, but I also look at um, opium, mm-hmm. which is an ancient and drug that we have a lot of. Uh, you know, we're demonizing it now, and it's killing a lot of people right now. I think ninety three thousand people overdosed on opiates last year, which mm-hmm. is astonishing. That's more than people right. who died in auto accidents. But it's also a, a blessing at the same time. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine going through surgery without opiates, and uh, um, and also at end of life, it, it can really be a blessing to people. And then caffeine uh, too, which is a plant medicine, also, although we never think about it that way. And and that ninety percent of us are involved with on a daily basis. Um, so I wanted to look at that too, which raises all sorts of question of well, what is a drug, and why do we moralize drugs so much? So yeah, that's been the journey I've been on. It's been and it's been fascinating. I have to say, I I did not use plant medicines or the the big ones mm-hmm. till very late in life. Um, mm-hmm. I was too afraid. I, I I didn't think I was psychologically sturdy enough when I was your age or you know mm-hmm. in my twenties that that um, it just seemed too scary and there was so much negative publicity about LSD and psilocybin at the time. So I'm a kind of a late bloomer when it comes to uh, plant medicines. I think that, you know, in my experience, the the longer you can go without trying psychedelics, the, the, the more, I guess, the more grounded and centered you can be in your spiritual and personal evolution. You know, I wish that I had waited when I was younger to, until I had the respect for these plants to be able to experiment with my consciousness. And, you know, I don't regret anything, but um, I do have to, you know, bring up, um, I I actually was close to being one of the people that didn't survive an opiate overdose. Mm. And, um, and so I have definitely seen the negative implications and consequences of abusing drugs and 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 their medicinal properties i was in pain but i was in a different kind of pain mm-hmm. and and so it, when i when i started uh reading your book i thought it was so interesting that you said uh in i believe sanskrit it is uh, opium is the flower of joy mm-hmm. and and i thought that was so interesting because in my experience that was it was so not that but it that's the entire purpose of this conversation is is how plants can shift our perspective and how when we're so stuck in this binary world of good versus bad and uh, healing versus not healing, it's it's so interesting how we can shift our consciousness through these things like plants and and some of which we do on a daily basis already and don't even realize it, like you said, like caffeine. Well, caffeine. But this idea of... of of plant medicines being able to shift our perspective on our own lives is is really profound. Mm-hmm. I take your point that I think that it's it's more useful as you get older and acquire that sort of a sense of intentionality, uh, mm-hmm. doing it not just for thrills, but for a purpose. I think that's yeah. really important. I think that there's a tendency to use drugs in a, in a kind of thrill-seeking way or in a reckless way. Um, and people need to have enormous respect for the power of these drugs. They can kill you. Um, not the psychedelics necessarily, although they, they have their own risks, which we should talk about. Um, 
the opiates certainly are, are you know, are dangerous. And, you know, the, the Greeks really understood this double-edged nature of drugs. They called them pharmacons. A pharmacon could be an ally or a poison. And, it, and the third meaning was a scapegoat. It was something you could blame things on. And, and all those meanings are, are there. And, and so I think that developing a proper respect uh, is really important. And, and also, you know, when people use, especially psychedelics when they're young, there's, an, there's a tendency to interpret it as a drug experience, as if the drug caused what went on in your mind. And that's not quite true. Whatever comes up on a psychedelic experience is in you. Wow, work, the, the, yes. The drug is the catalyst. There's yes. nothing in that molecule. There's no narratives in that molecule. There's no childhood trauma in that molecule. There are no visions in that molecule. It's really just a catalyst. And you're learning about your mind, the contents of your mind. And, um, and, and that's not something that, that people appreciate necessarily when they're young. And, and you hear people, you hear young people talking about, oh yeah, you, you know, when you saw God, uh, you, you just took too much, too much drugs. Um, right. But it's, the drug is only, um, is only the launching pad for something that's a lot more personal, I think. Yeah, I, I have actually found that uh, when I was younger, I, I didn't have good experiences because I was also in a, a much darker place than I am today. Mm -hmm. um, and then as I got older, I, I found that these journeys, I like to call them journeys, um, it, when I have embarked on a journey with plant medicine, they've come at a very transitional time in my life. And they have, I normally have an awakening in that process. Mm. And that's why today I don't, uh, regardless of having a shroom room, this is just like my love for the plant, uh -huh. <laughs> honestly. Um, I, and also it's the phone cover on my phone. Like <laughs> I just, I'm, I love them because I, I appreciate the magic and my mycology um, specifically. And, and I've been on a, a deep spiritual journey my entire life. I was raised Christian and I, and I now actually believe that God lies within each and every one of us. Mm -hmm. And I could not have had that awakening without plant medicine. And specifically um, mushrooms. Yes, specifically yeah. psilocybin, yes. It's an amazing, they're, they're amazing things and that, that nature has blessed us with these things that have this effect and that we figured it out uh, yes. is also incredible. Um, but I agree, I've had some very profound experiences on mushrooms um, that have shifted my perspective. And, you know, it doesn't always happen. And I think it helps a lot to be guided. Um, mm -hmm. I think to to uh, take advantage of everything mushrooms have to offer, we have to feel like we're in a very safe space. Um, because if you take them in the wrong environment and you feel your ego dissolving, which can happen at high doses and has happened to me, um, that can feel like you're dying. That can feel scary. And, and you might defend against it and, and resist and that's the worst thing you can do on mushrooms is resist. You have to, right. so you have to feel like in a place where you can surrender to them. And that right. means you're with someone you trust uh, and you're in a place where you feel safe. And, set and um, setting, yes. Set and setting is everything. And when you have that, that opens up a door to, to some extraordinary experiences. But, but it really does mean doing preparation and, um, and finding that guide or shaman 
um, and being in the right head to to surrender to you know relax your mind and float downstream as John Lennon said I mean that was the mm. best advice on psychedelics that uh, anyone's ever given it's almost like there's this primal or innate uh, urge to change our consciousness over time. Throughout thousands of years, we've been doing that. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that we're <laughs> constantly searching? What is it? And then, and also, how do you think uh, plant medicine played into evolution of the human brain? So I think we have an innate desire to transcend our circumstances and specifically to transcend this ego structure that surrounds us. I mean, we are, egos are very valuable. They get things done. They've, they've no doubt advanced your career. They helped me write books. And that way of looking at the world, a very self-interested way of looking at the world has a utility in evolution, but it also cuts us off. It builds walls and we desire to connect. We are a social creature. We cannot survive alone. We need other people. Uh, we need a community. Um, and uh, and I think the desire to transcend that cage of ego is profound. Uh, it's what is a religion is about. It's what the experience of awe is about. Just, you know, the, the experience of awe in nature. Um, they've done really interesting studies where they ask you to draw a picture of yourself, a stick figure picture, and then they show you an awesome image of Yosemite or something like that. And then they have you draw your picture again. And guess what? You will draw a smaller version of yourself, a smaller self, because your sense of yourself has, has been diminished by this grand imagery of awe. So I think awe is a, is a fundamental human desire and it's a pro-social desire. It connects us to other people. We stand in awe in a cathedral or at a religious uh, ceremony um, and we stand in awe using plant medicines. Um, so I think it's a way to escape the, the, the box of ourselves and, um, and connect with something larger. And what that something larger is, it could be community, it could be uh, the divine or the universe or nature. I mean, for me, I've had experiences of feeling more connected to nature on psilocybin than anything else I've ever done. I mean, I love plants. I love gardening. I have my whole life. But I always feel like I have one foot in the garden and one foot in some other place. You know, that. I mean, think about it. Humans talk about having a relationship to nature. That's crazy. We are nature. You know, a relationship <laughs> implies you're something different and separate. Right. Um, and most of us see ourselves as, uh, you know, having this subjecthood, this personhood, but, but nature doesn't. It's just stuff. It's just objects. And we can act on it as we wish. On psychedelics, I've had an experience where the plants were as alive as I am and have a strong perspective. And they were like returning my gaze. And I know that sounds nuts, but I had more sense of their presence than I ever had. So that and I felt more a part of the, I, I just felt like I was one species among many in the garden. And it was a wonderful feeling. And I felt more connected than I ever had to nature. So I think we have an innate desire for that. Um, how it has affected our evolution is very hard to know. I'm, I'm sure you've run into the thinking or writing of Terence McKenna, um, who is a psychedelic philosopher, no longer alive. Mm -hmm. But he had something called the stoned ape theory. 
And oh. he was convinced that when we were uh, early hominids living on the savanna in Africa, it was a lot wetter then, and there was lots of mushrooms that grew in the in the uh, manure of the ungulates, the various bovine creatures that were around cattle and related species. And of course, we were eating everything, and eventually we found these mushrooms and ate them, and um, they affected us in ways that, um, this is his theory, I don't know that I buy it all and it's very hard to prove, but that they helped uh, expand our minds and gave us a sense of language. And um, that the that at some point in our ancient history, you know, our, our brains got a lot bigger and complicated and we were able to have language and make tools. And he thinks it was our exposure to psilocybin that led to that. Um, is I don't that know. what he, is he the one that coined the term, the big bang of the brain? Yes, I think he did. Okay. And, okay. and that big bang came from psilocybin. Now, there's very good reason to believe that there was psilocybin on the savannas when they were wetter than they are now. And there's good reason to believe we ate them because we ate everything. We tried everything. Um, we were hungry. Um, but whether that influenced our evolution is going to be very hard to prove. Other things were going on, too. We learned how to cook, for example. That had a big effect on brain size because cooked food has a lot more uh, calories available than uncooked food. And so um, when we started cooking food, we didn't have to use as much of our meta metabolic resources to chew and digest. If you look at chimpanzees, they spend like six hours a day chewing. Hard to get much, <laughs> hard to get much else done. Um, but we don't because we externalize digestion with a fire or an oven. Uh, wow. And um, so that's another theory for how the brain got bigger. It's all just just so stories, though. Um, but I think that I'd be willing to bet that psychedelics played a role in the birth of religion. And that is very important to our evolution, our cultural evolution. Right. And that the images, the visions that underlie many religions, you know, where there's often somebody who comes back with a vision of God or a vision of the right. universe, and that it becomes, that's the beginning of a religion, I would bet that in many cases, those visions were planted by plant medicines um, and that we may have psychedelics to thank. So, you know, I, I think that psychedelics have nourished our culture and our religion uh, over thousands of years. You actually are so passionate about this that you co-founded the UC Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics. Why was that important to you? And what made you do that? Well, you know, in writing This Is Your Mind on Plants, I became convinced that we've got something really powerful here, a set of tools that can not only help uh, to treat mental illness, which I think is incredibly important, and that these substances, psilocybin and MDMA in particular, have the potential to revolutionize mental health care in this country, in this world, at a moment of incredible need. I mean, mental health, you know, rates of depression, suicidality, um, addiction are soaring, and um, we have very poor tools. So that's very exciting. But the other important thing that these substances can do is help us understand the mind. We don't, we don't really understand consciousness at all. We don't understand how, you yeah. know, three pounds of wet matter and cells in your brain can produce the subjective experience of being Demi or being Michael. This is a giant mystery, but psychedelics, I think, have the potential to help us understand that. So 
There was a lot of good clinical work going on at other universities, but we thought at Berkeley that we have great neuroscientists, that we could do this basic research to understand how psychedelics work in the mind, which we don't really know, and um, how they might elucidate these questions of consciousness and how the mind works. The other thing we want to do, and I'm not a scientist, so that part is other people are working on, um, but we want to research whether psychedelic experience can change society. There are a lot of people involved with psychedelics who are convinced that psychedelics hold the key to improving our relationship with the natural world and, and dealing with climate change, and that it can help overcome our sense of isolation and um, simply you know, lead to a revolution in consciousness that could help our species survive at a moment of great peril. But no one's tested that idea. No one's given psychedelics to very, you know, to Trump supporters to see if they have the same kind of the the same kind of um, reaction that you know liberals might have. Um, so we want to we want to test that and and see what happens. Um, the Ooh, other important thing, the other important thing that, and this is the part I'm working on, is public education. There's so many misconceptions about psychedelics, um, so much um, baggage left over from the 60s that um, we want to put out and we're going to do, you know, a, a website and a podcast and a journalism fellowship. We want to make the reporting on psychedelics just an accepted piece of the media and yeah. train a generation of young journalists to to report on this field because it's it's going to be so influential in the next few years. So that's why we, you know, I got together with some people in psychology and neuroscience at Berkeley, and we've started this, and and uh, we're going to start our research in the next few months. We're going to launch a newsletter uh, in the next month, probably, and this journalism fellowship, and there'll be stuff available for free online for people who want to learn about psychedelics, and we'll make that available starting in the next couple months. Oh, that's incredible. What was your first experience with plant medicine? Well, I had some... Um, kind of meaningless experiences when I was in my 20s and someone gave me some mushrooms and I took, you know, what is, I now know is referred to as a museum dose. It's somewhere <laughs> between the microdose you described and a, uh -huh. and a profound experience. The first big experience I had was um, in this guided uh, psilocybin trip, working with a guide on the East Coast. This woman I met who I, I just had a lot of trust in and confidence and she was she organized a beautiful ceremony and uh it was a pretty high dose of psilocybin and um i went through you know a lot of changes over the course of that afternoon but the most profound that i remember was um at a certain point she'd given me a booster dose you know a, a additional mushroom and um i looked out and i saw myself and this is going to sound a little weird, kind of explode in a cloud of post-it notes. And that was me, but I was gone. I was just, and but I was watching this from this whole new perspective that I didn't recognize as me. It was very objective. It was very untroubled by what was uh -huh. happening. And then the post-it notes fell on the ground and they became this, this pool of paint spread out on the ground. And I say, that's me, but I'm still uh -huh. here. And um, it was... It felt fine. It felt like as it should be. I had I had given up my ego completely. It had dissolved. And yet I still was aware. And that was very profound. And what happens though when you lose your ego is that there's nothing separating you from something larger. And I felt this sense of merging. And in my case, I merged with a piece of music. 
Um, I had the guide play uh, a Bach unaccompanied cello suite, number two in D minor, which is a very sad piece of music. I had heard it at funerals. It's it's gorgeous, played by Yo-Yo Ma. And as she played this on my headphones, I became the music. I know this sounds very weird, but I, there was not no difference. Yeah, <laughs> not, not to, to me. You. And so I had this sense of being one with something else, this gorgeous piece of music. And I almost could feel the bow like going across. I was the cello also. And I felt the bow, the horsehair is going across my body. And then I was inside the well of the cello where all this beautiful sound was coming. And it was such a literally ecstatic experience. Ecstasy means out of your body to be out. And I was out of my body. I was somewhere else entirely. And that experience taught me, I think, something really important, which is that we're not identical to our egos, that that's one voice in our head. It's not always the most helpful voice and that we will, we're larger than that. And there's more to life than that. And ever since I have a little more perspective on my ego, I know when he's up to his old tricks. I know when he's, he's being self-critical, he's being... Uh, judgmental, whatever it is. And I can, I can turn it off better than I used to because I know he's not the only voice in there. Um, right. And, and that, that's proven to be a, a real turning point experience for me. If you had to talk to somebody, say somebody that was looking to go on a journey of self-exploration, what would be the advice that you would give them? What would you say that they would start with? And also, what are the dangers of these plants as well? Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up because we should talk a little bit about risk for people who are considering doing this. Um, I, you know, when I was planning to do my first kind of big psychedelic experiences with LSD and psilocybin, um, I did a lot of research because I was already in my 50s and I wanted to make sure that this was safe. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a I was not at a reckless phase of my life. And so I did a lot of research and I was very surprised by what I learned about the classic psychedelics. This is LSD and uh, psilocybin and um, DMT, which is mm -hmm. the ingredient in ayahuasca. Um, mm -hmm. And um, the first was that these are not addictive drugs. They are not habit forming. People do not have the desire to keep using them. And you, mm -hmm. and you, I'm sure you know that once you have a, if you have a really big experience on a psychedelic, you're exhausted. It's really hard yeah. work. And, and you're not thinking, when can I do it again? You're thinking, do I ever have to do it again? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, and, th and then there's the issue of overdose. And in fact, there is no lethal dose of LSD, psilocybin, or DMT. That is remarkable because you have drugs in your medicine cabinet that you bought over the counter, things like Tylenol, that do have a lethal dose. And it's not that many pills, believe it or not. And um, so that's very reassuring that your body is not endangered by these drugs. Um, however, there are psychological risks. Um, and there are, uh, if you look at the drug trials that universities are conducting right now of psilocybin, they exclude people who have uh, any schizophrenia in their family. Um, uh, you know, a, a, a sibling or a parent or even an uncle, um, they will not allow you because they're worried that you could have a psychotic break. Um, some people have had psychotic breaks on, um, because it's just a powerful disruptive experience. And now mm. people have people who are going to get schizophrenia probably will get it regardless, but that the psychedelic could set it off. 
And that's something to be aware of. Um, mm -hmm. And there's certain things, people who have mania, um, you know, are often discouraged from taking psychedelics. Also, if you're on an SSRI, an antidepressant, um, there's not a danger in mixing it, but it won't work very well because the SSRI antidepressants occupy the same brain receptors. And so they block the action of the psychedelic. So it's usually advisable to taper off of an SSRI before you have a psychedelic experience. Uh -huh. People do have terrifying experiences, um, bad trips, as they call mm -hmm. them. And if you're with someone, with a, a shaman or a therapist or a guide, that bad trip can be incredibly productive. You can learn important things about yourself. Um, but if you're not, and you're just walking the streets of the city or using the drug in a, in a kind of careless way without respect, it can be really terrifying. It will pass. Um, you might have panic attacks, but, um, uh, it, you know, people need to be aware of that. The, the researchers and the really experienced guides don't use the term bad trip. They talk about a challenging trip. And indeed, if if like some childhood trauma comes up, that is terrifying. On the other hand, that's a very valuable piece of knowledge to bring forward into your life. So um, I think that, you know, if you if you do get the set and setting right, the chances of a, of a really negative experience uh, go way down. In fact, are quite low. Um, so, yeah. So it's a you know, it's about preparing yourself and realizing you're doing something you're doing something big. This is a this is going to be a big event in your life. Um, this yeah. could be one of the biggest events in your life, and so you don't approach that casually. Mm, that's beautiful. What do you consider a drug in your book? I was reading kind of a little bit about this, but I, in I guess in a more direct way, how would you? Yeah, I don't think there's a good definition of drugs. Actually, um, I went looking for a good definition and they're, they're really hard to find. And the Food and Drug Administration, who you would think knows the answer, they simply define a drug as something that's not a food that the FDA thinks is a drug. So that's not, that's a kind of a circular definition. It's not very helpful. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you know, I mean, when we hear the word drug, we immediately think of illicit drugs, illegal drugs. And right. um, uh, but of course, there are drugs that heal us all the time. We take we take drugs for you know various problems, and they're they're incredibly valuable. Um, I think even illicit drugs. I mean, that's an easier category. An illicit drug is anything the government says is illegal. Right. But even those are so different; they should not be lumped together. I mean, the drug war has has lumped opiates, with psychedelics, with meth, with cocaine. And these substances are more different than they are alike. And um, and there's something arbitrary about their inclusion. I mean, I was surprised to learn that back during Prohibition in the 1920s, when you could go to jail for um, manufacturing alcohol, making right. moonshine on your farm, um, even the, the women who fought against alcohol, the temperance uh, women, they were drinking opiates uh, in these women's tonics that you could buy in any drugstore. And cannabis was in those tonics too. And they thought nothing about kicking back a day, fighting against alcohol, enjoying their opiates. <laughs> so there's right. something arbitrary to this. Um, yes. Societies condemn 
certain drugs and then celebrate others. In our society now, we still we still condemn psychedelics, although mm-hmm. I think that's changing right now in an exciting way. Mm-hmm. We certainly condemn the opiates and meth and um, MDMA, all of which are still illegal. And we and for some reason, we alcohol is legal and cigarettes are legal, and those kill a lot more people. Um, right. So it's not a rational taxonomy. I mean, the divisions are the result of accident and and also we we've historically attacked drugs that are used by people disfavored people so so cannabis became illegal because it was used by Mexicans and African Americans and they actually i learned that they actually started calling it marijuana to imply a mexican uh, to imply that it was used by Mexicans. That's right. It's a racist and, term for cannabis, exactly. basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's to be avoided. We should call it cannabis, which is what yeah. the plant is. Um, but uh, it was also very popular in New Orleans and the jazz scene. And anybody that, you know, people that people in power felt was threatening, those were the drugs we went after. I mean, the great example, of course, is cocaine and crack. Uh, crack was used more by Africa, poor African-Americans. So even though it's the same drug as cocaine, right. the sentences are like 20 times worse for crack. You know, the drug war was a political war, is a political war more than a public health campaign. It was presented to us as a way to protect ourselves. You know, this is your brain on drugs. You remember those ads? Yes. That, and that's what I'm kind of playing with, with the title of the book. This is your mind on plants. And... Um, uh, and that ad was, you know, directed toward parents, obviously. Kids would right. just wait for it to come on TV and crack up, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. while high on I'm, cannabis. I'm going I'm to I'm admit, I <laughs> never listened to that commercial. <laughs> oh, God. It was, it was everywhere for a while. Um, President Nixon, uh, who really starts the war on drugs in 1970, the modern war on drugs, 50 years ago, he, uh, one of his advisors later gave a quote to a journalist where he kind of pulled back the curtain and told you what it was all about. And and he said that our biggest enemies, the Nixon administration enemies, were blacks and hippies. And we wanted to go after them. And we knew if we could demonize their drugs, cannabis in both cases, heroin, especially in the African-American community, that would give us a tool to disrupt their communities. And of course, the drug war has given us mass incarceration. Most of, of the course. people in jail for drugs are people of color. Right. And it's also destroyed the um, the democracies of Mexico and, and Colombia, I mean, by empowering the cartels. The right. collateral damage has just been so awful that it just can't end a moment too soon. Right. And I do see that I think it will end. I think I can see the end of the drug war. I mean, in the last election... Uh, in 2020, you know, five different states legalized cannabis. Uh, Oregon decriminalized all drugs and specifically legalized psilocybin therapy. In 2023, you will be able to go to Oregon and get legal psilocybin therapy, whether you have a diagnosis or not. Um, that's a big deal. Yeah. Um, so I think we're at the beginning of the end of the drug war. It's really interesting how we deem psychedelics to be so dangerous or unacceptable, but yet when you look at things like the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, actually Bill W. 
And some of the people in that book actually talk about their spiritual experience being on LSD. Yeah. And and that to me, when, when I realized that, I was like, oh my gosh, wait, I've been... You know, I, I've I've had my journey with with sobriety, and I now um, label myself as something that so, a lot of people have a lot of problems with. I call myself California sober, because, <laughs> because which means what? For me, it means um, it. I, I don't touch it unless it comes from a plant. You know, mm -hmm. and if it can kill you, I don't touch it. Mm -hmm. So um, after years of you know, I had six years stone cold sober. Then I, you know, the pendulum swung in the other way. And now it's landed back in the center of this, what I like to call, it's not, um, it, yeah, it's not all or nothing. It's my middle path. And mm -hmm. instead of calling it my middle path, I kind of gave it a cheeky term, which was California sober. But um, yeah, I, I, I talk about, I talk about that because it does introduce a different path for people who have been only exposed to just uh, the AA living way of living, which is complete abstinence. Right. And and I totally, I know that that except is- Except for coffee, by the way. Except for coffee, well, coffee too, coffee and LSD apparently. But I just, you know, it's interesting that um, in other periods of transformation, like when Alcoholics Anonymous became such a- Big thing. Here we have psychedelics again at the beginning of it. And so it's just very interesting to me um, how we've kind of – our society has deemed these psychedelics as dangerous or unacceptable. But what do you think that says about our values and fears as a group and as a society as a whole? Well, I think – psychedelics are threatening to a lot of people. I mean, going into your mind is a scary place to go for a lot of people. Right. And psychedelic psychedelic experience is not escapist. Uh, it's the opposite. Uh, it's really often facing up to who you are. And um, it's not like an opiate or other drugs that kind of take you out of yourself and, and, and medicate you or numb you. It, it's quite the opposite. It's hard right. work. And, yes. um, and you know that. Um, the The... The AA story is a very interesting one. I looked at that and how to change your mind. And that Bill W. got sober on a drug, a, a deliriant, uh, belladonna it was called. It's not exactly a psychedelic, but he had a, he had a spiritual experience on this drug. Uh, and he then did LSD therapy after he found it AA. And he believed that LSD could have a role to play in helping people get sober. But the board of directors of AA thought it was an overly complex message to include, to make some drugs okay and, and, and others not. And I kind of get it. I think that that would have, you know, the messaging challenge would have been enormous. I always thought that AA was kind of a proto-Christian group because of the discussion of the higher power and the divine. And uh, my dad was a member and I would go to meetings with him when he was getting sober. And um, uh, But in fact, it was a, a psychedelic spirituality. Um, it is um, based on Bill W.'s own experience. The interesting thing is psychedelics have been very helpful in helping people break addictions, including to alcohol. There is a very successful trial underway right now in New York uh, treating alcoholics with psilocybin. And they're apparent, they haven't published yet, but they're apparently getting very good results. It was the most common use of 
uh, psychedelic therapy in the 50s and early 60s was to treat alcoholism. And it had about a 50% success rate, which is higher than anything else that we we have. Um, so I think there is a role for psychedelics to play in treating addiction. And, um, and whether AA will ever get behind it or not, um, you know, I don't know. But yeah. um, it's not an intoxicant in the way that alcohol is. I mean, it's, 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 I think of it more as a mental tool and a, and a very powerful one. I do have one last question. Okay. Given the title of the podcast, it's called 4D with me, Demi Lovato, because I like to have conversations uh, that transcend the typical discourse and try to expand our consciousness. So I wanted to know, and I ask every guest this, this can be whatever you make of it, what does living in the fourth dimension mean to you? Wow. Yeah, I, I think it means questioning everything you assume is true and normal uh, and everyday normal consciousness and realizing that there are other dimensions of consciousness that are out there. And some plant medicines give us access to it. Meditation gives us access to it. Yogic breathing gives us access to it. Um, but just keeping in mind at all times, especially when this dimension of consciousness is so fucked up, um, yeah. <laughs> that there is another one, and at least one. And yeah. four, you know, you may be undercounting uh, by right. a lot. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, that's true. So anyway, but I also want to uh, applaud you for speaking openly about this and your experience with plant medicines and, and other um, drugs, so-called drugs, um, that, you know, you you have a, a large influence and, and, and working to educate people about this and clear up misconceptions is enormously, it's a great contribution. Oh, well, thank you so much. Who pointed it out to you that you love plants so much and your last name is Pollen? <laughs> You know, uh, it's it's called a, a, an aptonym, right? An apt name. And uh, I feel very fortunate, um, but I yeah. got the right name for my profession without question. <laughs> yes, when I published totally. a book called Botany and Desire, everybody pointed it out to me and people started writing similar names on pieces of paper and handing it to me at public events. You know, Dr. Payne, who is an anesthesiologist. And, you know, I mean, there were so oh, many wow. like them. So I actually have a collection of aptonyms. Uh, I have hundreds of them and they're they're wonderful. So I'm, I'm very proud of my name. Thank you. Oh, good. <laughs> yes, of course. Well, yeah. thank you so much. It oh, sure. A pleasure talking, talking to, to you, Demi. And I really appreciate your introducing me to your audience. It's great. Mm -hmm.